the words I speak and the words we hear you'll be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. It feels like our world is pretty broken at the moment. I guess it always has been, but with the constant news stream and social media, it's just a lot more visible. America seems to be spiraling down this plug hole of division with passions burning bright around gun violence and the availability of assault weapons, the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wild, and state laws limiting weapons, and the hearings around the January the 6th insurrection. And through social media, if you want to, and even sometimes if you don't want to be, you can be right in the middle of all of that hostility and argument. And we have our own issues here in Tauranga, with Māori Party saying that this place is racist, which some people agree with and some people don't. <coughs> We've had Bethlehem College uh, with con controversy around changing their charter without talking to the Ministry of Education, the attacks on the students at the anti-bullying rally and their official attitudes towards their gay and transgender students. And all of that seemed to swirl around as the Rainbow Youth and Gender Dynamics office in the Tauranga village was arsoned, attacked, burnt down. It all seems a lot more extreme at the moment. And somehow, we Christians seem to be involved in some very unhelpful ways. Ways that don't seem to line up to what our readings, at least this morning, were on about. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus mixed with all kinds of people, and pretty diverse people. They weren't all the same. So, he spent a lot of time with ordinary people who just were hoping for something better. He spent time with rich people and very poor people. He spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes and Gentiles and Romans and Samaritans. So going down the scale or up the scale of people you shouldn't like, Samaritans would be at the top of that scale. Romans just slightly underneath. And he spent time with Pharisees. Now there are all those people that you wouldn't normally mix with. If you were with one group, you wouldn't be anywhere near the other group. And actually, because he ate and therefore honoured and blessed some of those groups of people, he accepted their hospitality. That, in Luke's Gospel, is what gets him into trouble. That's why they crucify him. He is breaking too many rules. He is removing too many barriers. And people don't like it. And I haven't ever thought about this before, but that same kind of diversity, those same divisions, are present in his band of followers. I mean, if you look at pictures of them, they all look pretty much the same. There was one picture that had them all, you know, kind of men about the same age, looked almost exactly the same. But actually they weren't. So some are named as zealots. So they're not zealots in the same way that they were in the insurrection around 68 
Uh, that was an official revolutionary group. But zealots were people who really hated the Romans and longed for the day when the Romans were gone. And lots of people hoped that Jesus was going to be the one who got rid of the Romans. But also in his group of followers were tax collectors. And who do tax collectors work for? The Romans. They are the collaborators. They are the ones who make a living collecting the tax on behalf of the Romans. And one of the things that people didn't like about the Romans was their tax. So think back to the Second World War, you had collaborators and you had the resistance fighters. Imagine putting those two groups together in the same room. That's what's happening with Jesus. Resistance fighters, collaborators in the same group, along with pious and devout Jews and not so pious and devout Jews, men and women. What are the women in the pictures? Who backrolls this thing? It's the women. They're there. They're part of this group of followers. We just forget to put them in the pictures. There's wealthy people and there's poor people. There's people of high honour and people of low honour. And they should not be in the same room at the same time. And yet, somehow, here they all are, following Jesus. There was something about Jesus, something about who he was, something about how he related to people, and something about what he taught that allowed all these groups of people that normally would not be in the same room, would normally despise each other, to be following Jesus. So how does he do that? Well, I wonder if today's story is an example of that. Now, we have heard stories about Jesus sending out his 12 followers in the past. So they're the kind of inner group. But today, and uh, last week, we heard about some of the reasons why people struggled to follow Jesus. But this week we have a much bigger group sent out. So the assumption is that those people who came up with all the reasons last week didn't follow Jesus. But actually, there's nothing in the text that says that. They just come up with why it's going to be hard to follow him. And clearly there was a much bigger group following Jesus than just the twelve. We know that because there were women involved, and they're not named in the twelve. And this week, Jesus sends out some of that, those much bigger group of people. And this story is set as he has started his journey to Jerusalem. He has set his face to Jerusalem. We heard that last week. And all that entails. We are on the journey to the end. So everything else is kind of a build up. Now he's on to the end. And he needs to prepare his followers to be able to continue what he is doing after he has been crucified and risen and ascended. He's not going to be around in the same way. And somehow this very diverse group of people has to hold together and continue the work that he has been doing. And so he sends them out in pairs without their own resources. That's, that's an interesting thing. 
It's very important reading and uh, other versions of the story for us Franciscans. It was this story and its equivalents that really inspired Francis. Uh, it was hearing this that he understood what it meant to live the gospel for him. And that was to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. Well, in fact, he just gave it back to his dad. But others had to sell everything they had and gave it to the poor. And then to do as Jesus taught, to go out in pairs, without a money belt, without sandals, although I've seen his sandals, he did wear sandals, and uh, sometimes without a spare tunic, um, that's in one of the other versions. So very limited what you were allowed to take, no staff in some of them, so quite radical poverty. So what's Jesus doing here? And we struggle with this, like we read that and go, this is very hard, I mean the no sandals, but really my feet aren't up for this. Really. Well, if you send out these diverse people, some of whom have a lot of resources and some people have no resources, and you put them up, pair them up, and then send them out without their money bags, without their resources, without all the things that actually divide them, and say, off you go, well, suddenly they're equal. They are equally reliant on the reception they get, and they are equi equally reliant on each other. One is not better than the other. He's taking away many of the things that separate people. This week I've been listening to a book about interfaith leadership, and uh, one of the stories in the book uh, is about an outward bound group in America, uh, which involved people of different faiths, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, amongst others. And at the beginning they had to introduce themselves, and there was a very conservative Christian guy, and he introduced himself by saying that the world was going to end soon, and unless everyone there accepted Jesus into their hearts, they were all going to burn in hell, and the Muslims would burn in the hottest hell. Which is great, especially if you were Muslim. Then they went on this tramp. There was no water where they were going on this tramp, and it was over several days, so the largest blokes got all the water to carry. This Christian was one of the largest blokes, and the other large bloke was a Muslim. So you can imagine the conversations between these two water carriers to start off with. Non-existent. But on the first morning of the tramp, when the Muslim got up, he noticed that the Christian guy was already praying. So the Muslim was getting up to do his first prayers for the day, the Christian was also praying. And so he asked him about that later on in the day. It provided a way for them to have a conversation. And over, over the next few days, they grew in respect for each other, to the point where if one woke up to say prayers and noticed the other one was still asleep, he would nudge him awake so that he too could say his prayers in the morning. Now, what did they do? In the end, they concentrated on what held them together rather than what separated them. Most things still existed. The conservative Christian guy was still a conservative Christian guy, and the Muslim was still a Muslim, but actually they found they had a lot in common as well. And they could concentrate on that. So I wonder, and I've never thought about this story in this way, I wonder if in part... That's what Jesus is doing in the story. 
This is a lot less about what they do and a lot more about what happens to them in this process of being sent out with none of the normal resources they have, being equally dependent on each other and equally dependent on the welcome and the hospitality and the generosity or not that they receive in each of the places they go to. These are the people who will carry on the mission of God, living the nearness of the kingdom of God after the resurrection, building new communities with the old ways that tear us apart are set aside, some of the ways that Debbie talked about last week in her sermon. And Jesus sends these people out so that they can, without their own resources, so that they can come closer together, so they can stay together after he's gone. And interestingly, while they're out there, they don't try to persuade people of the rightness of what they're saying. If they're not welcomed, they simply leave and brush off the dust off their feet, either as a kind of curse or as a, or as a sign of, well, we didn't even want the dust off your feet. We weren't here to take anything from you. We had nothing to lose. We leave even the dust behind. They set out to create new communities that are based around the hospitality and the welcome that is offered or not. And their response is to offer God's peace, shalom, which is wholeness and completeness, the way that God wants, wills the world to be. That is what they offer. So I think the story is as much about the 70 or 72, depends on which translation you're reading, as, as it is about what they did. I think this is about them being shaped in God's peace so that they can gather communities around them based on God's shalom. It's about them learning humility and working and trusting others who are different from them and having the courage to keep offering communities of peace even when they are rejected because they will be rejected just as Jesus is rejected. That's where they're headed. This building new communities is hard to do, especially, especially once you move past those, that first founder. Francis knew that. He experienced that. The first brothers who knew him, who were inspired by him, who under his guidance did sell everything they have and give it to the poor and followed him in this radical way of poverty, they got what he was about. But then there were people who joined his order who had never met Francis. They'd heard about him, they'd heard about his teaching, they were inspired by it. But the more degrees of separation, the harder it came for people to get what Jesus, what Francis was on about. And when he came back from the Holy Land, we visited the crusade and spent time with the Sultan, he found a deeply divided order. And a lot of those fracture lines were down, were along who had known him personally and who hadn't. The vision was really hard to transmit. And we can see that with Paul. So Paul gets this vision 
And he is trying to set up communities where people who are really different, Jew and Gentile, can gather in the same place around the table. That is a radical thing. And, well, his great struggle is that there is this constant pullback to the way things had been in the past. And there is this constant need to establish rules about who's in and who's out and how we identify who the real insiders are. One of the commentators I read said that Paul is consistently adamant that God's love reaches out to all people without discrimination and seeks to bring them into new ways of being. It's not often how Paul is portrayed today. Portrayed as pretty legalistic and judgmental. But I actually think if you read Paul, that's not who Paul is. You can take out your favourite little bits of Paul and use those to justify your theology, that's fine. But Paul was not legalistic. Paul was trying to set up communities where all people were accepted and included. So again, in how in his letters we can read that particularly in the one to the Romans, which was all about this, and the Galatians. He is struggling to, to find what holds people together and to invite them to let go of what separates. And so we've just heard, if you read Galatians all the way through, where he talks about this community being a community where there are no Jew or Gentile. Those are big fracture lines. And he's saying we have to let go of those and be one people in Christ. There is no male or female. I'm amazed how often Paul is used to justify patriarchy. The men are in charge. Women should follow. Paul said, yeah, that's why he wrote letters to the female leaders of his churches. Those are female names usually at the beginning of the letters. Not males, females. So, you know, like really? I don't think Paul was as into the patriarchy as we like to think. Slave or free, their entire economy was based on that. Here's Paul saying, in this community, there should be no slave or free. Getting rid of the things that divided people. Imagine those kind of communities today in the midst of these deep divisions where our interactions are marked too often by trying to prove that we're right and by reinforcing all that divides us. Imagine if our interactions were marked by the fruits of the Spirit instead Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I was struck as I read this week's passage, verse 2 of chapter 6. Carry each other's burdens, and so you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens. I wonder in our conversations if we started with, what are the burdens that you carry rather than I'm right, you're wrong. For example, instead of making abortion illegal, asking the question, why do people need or want to have abortions? And what do we need to change about that? 
I wonder then what difference it would make if we sought to carry each other's burdens rather than prove that we're right. I wonder how we can bring God's peace into so many of the divisions that we are experiencing at the moment. And I wonder what we as individuals and as a church offer those conversations. So I invite us to spend a few minutes in conversation with the person next to you about how you respond to all of that. And then we will skip the creed and go straight to the creeds.